Welcome to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast, a journey of self-discovery and transformation. Moira Sutton and her amazing guests share real-life stories, tools, and strategies to inspire and empower you to create and live your best life. Come along on the journey and finally blast through any fears, obstacles, and challenges that have held you back in the past so you can live your life with the joy, passion, and happiness that you desire. Now, here's your host, Create the Life You Love Empowerment Life Coach, Moira Sutton. Welcome to our second season, episode 32, The Adventure of Loving, Appreciating, Savoring, and Trusting Life, with our very special guest, author, speaker, poet, and coach, David Charles Brower. David, an American by birth, has chosen the city of love and pleasure, Paris, France, as his home for the last 30 years. He spends his life searching for love and creating abundant sensorial experiences everywhere he goes wherever and whomever he finds himself with. As the sensorial guy, I hope I'm saying that right, <laughs> and inspired by his own romantic personality, he inspires others globally to connect to each other in meaningful ways, to find joy in the everyday, create moments of romance daily, and find pleasure in the small details and nuances of life. Always from his intensely creative perspective, David expresses his love for life through writing, Poetry, dancing, which I love, David, creating delicious meals in his professional home kitchen, gathering and hosting people, and helping others transform from the stage as a storyteller. His work for the larger part of the last decade has been in developing his sensorial intelligence, programs, events, and lifestyle, which has been the catalyst for the creation of his heartwarming first short story, Dance of the Love Caterpillars. This storytelling gem is a universal romantic love story between two caterpillars. It's an inspiration to lovers and would-be romantics of all ages. So without further ado, I'm so excited and would like to welcome our very special guest, David Charles Brewer. Welcome, David. Hi, Moira. It's really Hi. lovely to be here. And we, we've both been looking forward to this. Yes, and the timing. We trust in life, don't we? Because you had um, electricity issues down there last week when we were going to have our heartfelt conversation. So we just trust in the process. And that, exactly. that's, that's perfect. Okay, so let's dive in here. Like, David, when you were growing up, you, you state that you were an overly self-conscious, small, but very athletic kid. And you grew up in Beverly Hills in a family that was connected to the entertainment world. What was that like? And what were the feelings that you you went through because you talked about isolation and how, how did that how did that all affect your sense of self-expression and your self-belief? And how did you start to heal parts of yourself and heal the emotional pains that you experienced? That's a big question, David. I'm a big child. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but that's how I think. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll give it my best here. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in uh, in Beverly Hills, and you know, pretty pretty good situation. I mean, everything in life is relative, and I wouldn't say we were on the richer side of the train tracks or anything like that. But you know, life was life was fine uh, enough. Um, this said, I mean, 
you know, uh, I was a very small kid. I was under five feet tall until I was about 17. And that wasn't such a big problem when I was in grammar school. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once I got into high school, four different schools feed into high school, four times as many people, and everyone started getting bigger. And so me, who was absolutely passionate about sports, I was, you know, everything for me. Uh, You know, I just couldn't make the cut in anything. And so everything that I loved in life, uh, mostly uh, athletics and sports and everything I lost. And so with it, I lost sort of connection with uh, friends. I lost kind of um, feeling that there was a connection with girlfriends and like being low visibility and oh my God, he's an athlete and la la la. Like my whole life kind of got cut off. And then I lost a bunch of friends who started you know, smoking pot and I couldn't really keep up. I I get sick all the time and I just kind of couldn't hang out with them and they just kind of let me go. And, you know, I spent a probably a year and a half with not really any friends. I kind of hung out with a, uh, another guy who was kind of lonely also. And we rode around on his scooter and smoked clothes and, you know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, I had to sort of create from there a life outside of high school. I had to do sports outside of high school, go out and do Taekwondo and come at like six o'clock in the morning and do running in the morning because I couldn't be in any other athletic uh, activity. And so it was it was so uh, painful for me at the time. And, you know, I look back uh, as I've looked back on my life. So it was quite a long time ago. And I just realized that, you know, these experiences form really who we are. Um, if we're lucky to transform them somehow by a love of life, by a trust in in our own sort of destiny and that things are going to work themselves out and that our our differences and our failures and our our lackings and uh, you know all these pains are can turn into something really beautiful. And really, it feels like to me that's what happened because I turned very much towards realizing I would have to find other ways to connect with people, other ways to stand out. Uh, and I would actually be creating somewhat of an original existence. Uh, I would be, you know, not following everyone, not doing as the Joneses. Uh, and consequently, even like comparing less myself to, to others, which was dramatic there. I mean, I would go to school in high school and in the beginning didn't even have a car. And, you know, people are arriving in Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Maseratis and Porsches wow. that are, you know, six, 16 years old, right? And, you know, every every week there's two or three people wearing a bandage over their nose because they've gotten a nose job. And so it's just like a sick amount of, uh, of money being thrown uh, and being used by and lived by people who didn't earn the money. It's the parents who, you know, kind of have the money. So it really twists your head. And a lot of my friends' heads got twisted. And somehow I think it was the beginning of mine being able to kind of step away from a standard path, live a normal kind of life, so to speak, um, which led to when I got to college, I was studying political science because, of course, political science is the most creative space and profession you can be in. We all know this. Um, and so I would, uh, you know, write papers and things and just make up arguments. And And I got straight A's. It was pretty, pretty hilarious. Uh, but I realized there that I was heading towards law school because I'd fled kind of 
the careers of my parents who are in the Hollywood and theatrical side of uh, the business, performer side and business side. And I was so self-conscious and so afraid of criticism. And I just felt that I wasn't enough because I'd been told I wasn't enough. I wasn't big enough. And just, you know, I'm a sensitive Leo, I guess, and maybe an empathic person. Mm. And it just, all of that just really got to me. And so I didn't want to fall into the path with, of my parents in that sense. I didn't want to be, you know, perhaps criticized or taught or have to go through the process of learning to be an actor or a singer or a dancer or something with, with my mom, who I saw as this Maria Kala figure who spoke five languages and sang opera. And, you know, it was, it was pretty daunting to feel that I would have to live up to something like that. And frankly, all the stuff that I'd done sports-wise, the sports that interested me the most were the ones that were kind of freestyle. I loved roller skating. Um, I loved playing catch the man with the ball. So instead of sort of playing football, you like just hand me the ball and I'm trying to run and try and catch me. So interestingly, <laughs> I was already starting as a young boy to kind of just be different. So anyway, I get, I, I'm studying to get into law school from UCLA after political science. And uh, I take two preparatory courses, right? The two main preparatory courses you can pay to have. Like nobody does this, right? Like I'm preparing like, like, like it's never enough. It's never enough. And of course I do horribly, horribly on the test. And that was a, a crazy awakening moment that was this lightning bolt that said, this is not your path. Stop forcing and pushing. You need to go and roam and explore and literally escape this context in this environment and go on your own hero's journey mm. and not follow the crowd who's much of them are, are hypnotized anyway, or conditioned, or, you know, there's a destiny that they don't want, but they're just going into because that's what they do. That's what people do. And so here I am three weeks after getting out of college where all my friends are either going to graduate school or have a job or something, I'm getting on a plane with a one-way ticket to go to Paris, France, to basically get away for a year, year and a half, you know, kind of saying I'm going to come back and go to law school still, in spite, you know, what happened. Um, and, you know, that was sort of the, like, key beginning of my life. And, you know, that was 30 years ago in the month of April this year, 30 years and I never moved back. I never moved back full time to live in the United States after I left it at that point. I've worked with American companies. I've traveled there a lot for business and for holidays and stuff. But I never I never moved back. And I built a life um, which very few Americans uh, do, literally. I mean, there's less than 100,000 Americans that live in France. So probably half of them are retired people. And the other, perhaps even people, uh, and I mean residents, are probably people who are not really there for that long. You know, maybe they're there for a year or two because they want to experience Paris or they're on a mission for some company or UNESCO or, you know, something like this. Um, and I've been there, I, you know, 30 years. So, so yeah, that's a, a big piece of the, the beginning puzzle. I don't know if you want to pause for a moment. Or... <laughs> I think you answered everything there. Um, so... You were, you were 22 when you made this one-way purchase, like one ticket to go one way. Why Paris, France? You sound like you had traveled a lot of other places. Was that a place for you that you were drawn because it, it you know, it's sort of romantic and people have these images of, of Paris, France? Is that why you chose there? Or did you have other places you were going to look at too? 
Well, firstly, I traveled a bit inside the United States and yes. maybe to Toronto and probably Tijuana. But other than that, I hadn't traveled anywhere. Um, I had very, you know, educated, illuminated, worldly parents in a lot of ways, but I hadn't really traveled. I'd never been to Europe. And so it turns out I was either going to go to Spain or France. Spain was because I spoke Spanish was the first second language I'd learned. And for France, uh, you know, the mystique of France, I mean, like even today still, like how many times do we hear people say, uh, go on a romantic escapade to Paris, the pace of pleasure is Paris. Um, you know, if I had a dream life, I'd move to Paris. If I want to become a writer, I'd move to, you know, but yeah, it's just like all of this stuff kind of going on, particularly for Americans. And part of this actually is a parenthesis is for my dad's generation, right after the second world war, there were about a hundred black and white movies made by Americans uh, in the studios there about uh, romance and love and pleasure uh, in that took place in Paris and France, which like 99% of them were filmed in studios, right? Mm -hmm, <laughs> Not filmed mm -hmm. in Paris at all. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, close the parentheses there. And the link is that my dad had in the early 70s tried to produce a movie with, uh, with and about Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre, the guy who created existentialism philosophy and their love affair. And so he'd found a lawyer who'd helped get the script to Simone de Beauvoir. Turns out the story never got made, uh, but he kept that relationship. And, you know, 20 years later, suddenly he calls his lawyer friend and says, do you think you could give my son a, a you know, an entry job or a mailboy job or something to just kind of get his foot in the door there for a few months? So with a student visa, it was something very easy to do. And that's what decided that I would go um, there. I had no interest in going anywhere else on the planet because I had no idea at that time about anything outside of uh, where I grew up. I was living in such a monocultural ghetto, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is a good ghetto to be in. I'm not saying it isn't, but nonetheless, you know, uh, pretty, uh, pretty same old, same old, uh, you know, kind of life and people and environment and experiences and, you know, I had no idea there was a, all these different cultures and worlds and languages and foods uh, and like, you know, how people manage trash cans and dog poop and, you know, <laughs> what bus, sta bus stands look like and, uh, you know, how men and women relate with each other and how people dress. And, yeah, I mean, so many things that uh, are, are different. So I really knew nothing. But that's why I went to Paris was because of my dad's help there. And then after those three months, I I met someone when I was there who helped me get the next job. And then just kind of things kind of carried on until uh, until I uh, I kind of circled back into the entertainment business, which couldn't really get away from me because my heart is a, a creative artist's heart, a storytelling heart, uh, kind of a performer showman. You know, I, that's part of me. It's also part of what I grew up in and ended up heading back towards the entertainment com uh, business without really realizing it and getting a job with Disney in the publishing division right around when uh, they launched the park in France, as well as the, uh, um, it was like around Lion King, which mm -hmm. is like the biggest, biggest movie ever at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a great time to be there, except it was this massive company. And I was great. I was working with Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I'd started to travel. 
I met a beautiful uh, French woman. Uh, we actually got married so I could get papers and stay, even though we were in love and trusted each other. Uh, and yeah, I mean, professionally it led on for five years. And at some point, you know, you get to appoint these kinds of jobs and things, uh, which was great, but I kind of looking up above me and saying like, whose job do I want? And like, there's nobody in the whole company whose job I want. And so, you know, my, my passion, desire, originality uh, had kind of outgrown um, staying there, no matter, you know, how good a situation it was. And so I left for a five person company, also in the entertainment business, distributing programs to Latin America. We distributed the, the Jim Henson catalog, you know, the Muppets and all of that mm. and other things. And I uh, became the, you know, the marketing director, if you wish. And we dealt with Latin America. We distributed all this to Latin America from Paris. Totally crazy. <laughs> so it went from this massive multinational to a five-person startup. And then after five years, we got bought out by a German company, went public. I became the international VP of marketing. And that lasted about a year until they basically kicked me out because they had other plans. And I was stuck in Paris and didn't want to move. Uh, and yeah, I'd in between been looking for something and actually fell upon IMAX, uh, the big screen cinema company mm -hmm. and worked for them for 10 years as they grew from, I mean, you know, IMAX, you're in Canada. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, I had a glorious uh, time working for, you know, the world's really premier entertainment technology company for immersive, you know, sensorial cinema really the greatest. I mean, for a certain time, the tagline was see more, hear more, feel more, right? I mean, oh my gosh, here I am, the sensorial guy. I mean, it all makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And so anyway, so I, all this time I stayed because I was married uh, to a beautiful, loving woman that I was, I adored. And we'd start, we, you know, we'd built a life, very big French family, uh, and I loved it there. I loved the food. I loved the travel. I loved the, you know, five to seven to 10 weeks of holiday a year. Uh, I love being surrounded by so many different cultures and, you know, that, that like living and loving life and pleasure, uh, and time off and like all these things that relate for me, that kind of mean a successful life. Um, I loved and I love still. You know, so, so yeah, I stayed there and still, I'm still in there. I know that part of the reason when I followed, um, now it's interesting when you said where you went and everything else, because when I was in my thirties, I've always liked travel and culture and food and people and diversity. And, you know, I wanted to go to Australia and back then you had to um, apply for like a work visa and really, really convince them that you were going to stay, um, which I did at the time. And then that fell through for some reason. And I ended up, I was in England and I came back to Canada for a course in something called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And that's where I met my, my husband. So it's interesting how things unfold if you just allow to follow, you know, the flow in that. Oh, and I love that, Moira. That's one of the, when I look back on my life, I say, the greatest moments of advancement and discovery in my life happened after me allowing myself to explore and wander and saunter and roam. Mm -hmm. uh, and somehow one way or another, that brings me back to my heart. It brings mm -hmm. me back on my own path, not someone else's version I of my that. path. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, you run into 
serendipitously you run into by destiny you run into divinely whatever it is right you're and these are the opportunities and it almost feels like you're available to see them and recognize them mm-hmm. because you're not you know caught up in in stuff that's not what you should be caught up in <laughs> you know and i know we're both on the same terms with that because you know my um create the life you love on your terms i you know we're both about that because it's not somebody else's it's not your parents your sister your brother you know, it's what you want and what you desire, because I truly believe mm-hmm. what you put on your heart, your desires were put there for you to go explore them, to live mm-hmm. them and, you know, to really honor that and, and what, you know, you truly love, but definitely on your terms. And instead of like you, when we're younger or something, we want to be like, not maybe, I never wanted to be like the Joneses, but you do have that when you're younger, you know, growing up your self-esteem and what you look like, what you feel like, all those things. Then you get to a certain age and that's that's not that important really, at least not for everybody, but some people might still be exploring differences with that and having a hard time. But everyone's very unique and we all have a unique path and a gift to, you know, to bring out to the world and contribute. So living in Paris, I heard everything you said about the, you know, pleasure, beauty, and you're in touch with your senses every day. Tell us what Paris taught you about diversity and the differences of people. I would like to hear that from you. Well, one of the the great uh, moments I remember early on after I'd been in Paris for three months, I was actually traveling around Europe. I found myself in Spain. I was in a, a beautiful medieval village called Ronda. Mm-hmm. And I was alone. I'd left my friends who had been traveling with, and I went out dancing, <laughs> you know, like you would have done. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I find myself, in a nightclub underground in a in an old cellar and like all night long for three hours they play spanish music uh and you know everyone is singing along to most of the songs and it was this unbelievable culture shock for me right to say like wait a minute where i come from doesn't own culture where i come from doesn't isn't the world culture uh, you know, they're way more and way different and just as valid other expressions at all levels, food, arts, um, lifestyle. I mean, it's just there's so many ways to live a life yes. and uh, there's so many different cultures and there's so many different expressions. And so that was a, a massive moment for me to realize that like other people can love something as much as I love my culture or my music, you know, and that's great. I'm like, so happy for them. Um, even if I know nothing about it, even if I don't like it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Right. So, you know, to have the respect for that, to honor that, to notice and see that, and gosh, maybe even you like it, maybe there's something to appreciate. Wow. Suddenly you, start to learn all these different cultures. And in Paris, you're surrounded by so many, you know, within two hours of flight, there's 25 countries, including even Africa, just about. So Paris has a lot of mixed cultures and people. And um, in jobs, you're surrounded by a lot of different mixed people. Uh, and they're they, oftentimes they're very close to their language and their culture because their country's not too far away, or maybe their family has moved there also. So, you know, there's that. Uh, I wouldn't say Paris is the most international place for food. <laughs> That's changed a little bit, but French food is so dominant and so fundamental and so, um, you know, so impressive and so 
um, so eclectic. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many, you know, 300 plus cheeses already, right? You know, and all the different kinds of wines. And I mean, the, the endless myriad of, of dishes uh, and the, you know, sincere attachment to the agricultural diversity of what's, uh, what's created there. And so, you know, there's already so much there to experience when it's good. And there's a lot of good places to, to eat when you know where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when you cook at home, I mean, outside my place, 50 yards away here, I have an outdoor market on two sides of the street for 300 yards, right? Beautiful. So every, you know, every three days, every two, three days, I can go and get fresh food from artisanal, mostly artisanal um you know, entrepreneurs really, or fishmongers or meat people, et cetera. So there's a lot of that. Um, I've always, you know, when I came to Paris, I did not do the expatriate life at all. I surrounded myself by French people. I wanted to learn the language, the culture. I married a French woman. Mm -hmm. And so the diversity started to form around there. And it wasn't that I didn't have some expatriate friends, but my focus wasn't necessarily on that. And I'm significantly committed to the idea that the richness of our life comes from the diversity that uh, of, of experiences and people and foods and drinks, you know, all these sensory sensorial experiences that we can choose and offer ourselves. Um, and I would even say probably even more significant, which is not necessarily Paris related, but, you know, I've traveled since I moved to Paris you know, massively around the world. And so I've had, you know, unbelievably exotic, interesting, rich experiences that have been fundamental to who I am, that have been, you know, life-changing in how I experience the world, how I see the world, how I respect and honor other cultures, other perspectives, other ways of, of being and, you know, and and living. So, so, I mean, yeah, Paris for that has been very good. On the other side, though, I mean, Paris is, very strong culture, very strong, you know, attachment to the language. Um, They want you to kind of fit in. Um, You know, it's a, it's a centralized system. It's very paternalistic in how it's run. Uh, You know, there, there's a a certain rigor uh, in the way that they want things to be done, et cetera, alongside this sort of Latin kind of craziness. So, you know, it's kind of a balance to, to find in there uh, all of that. But, you know, everyone comes to Paris. I can't tell you how many people, um, you know, Paris is what the second or first most visited city in the world. So it's your, your people come to you. And so the diversity of the world comes to you and you just open your dinner table if you want. And, you know, you have unbelievably enriching mixed blended experiences where people can bring their richness, their culture, their originality, and share with you a way of being and, and knowledge and, um, you know, their version of loving life. And it so enhances the way that you experience the world. You know, it's like you're getting dopamine hits by having just an evening with people sharing their lives. It's so great. Like, like, like-mindedness is so overrated for me. Like, right. oh, let's go, let's go hang out with like-minded people. I'm like, you kidding? I get that, <laughs> what they mean by that. At the same time, I'm like, well, you understand, that's why the world has all its problems, because like-minded people only hang out with like-minded people, and they don't want to hear from non-like-minded people. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, 
that's a little bit of a conflict, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so you coined this term, sensorial intelligence. So is that mm-hmm. what that is? It's what you're just talking about with the richness and experiencing and life and food and just all experiences, because that's a really neat term that you coined. So if you can expand on what that means to you and our listeners can learn from that, and then how can they begin to, what's the first steps you would tell somebody to start implementing this into their life every day? Because a lot of people get stuck in, you know, we're going to talk about that a bit, boredom or, which, or no excitement, and they're just sort of going through the, the motions without any emotions I talk about. <laughs> Um, yeah. And they've kind of lost that sense because they're overwhelmed or, you know, they just don't know where to go back to that if they even had it at any time. So yeah. how do you teach people that and just expand on that a bit? Sure. I mean, about sensorial intelligence, yeah, I, I feel like uh, the world has become very black and white. You know, it's lost this diversity, this nuance, this this range, this fluidity to dance within, um, you know, different experiences. I mean, you know, like a light switch. I don't just want an on or off. I'd like to have a variator to let me adjust the light to how much light I want to have in the moment, spontaneous, um, strategically planned, whatever. Uh, But to have that choice to be able to variate my experience, my reaction, my sense of uh, what's happening, my perspective, the meaning I give it, the value I give it, the, the importance I give it, the fundamentalism, the essentialism that I, that actually bring to it. So Uh, On one side, it feels like, you know, the world can be lost in this perception that pleasure is a is a hedonic, um, you know, like Jim Morrison over the top, uh, crazy drug, crazy sex, um, like addiction level, uh, you know, way of experiencing the world. Like like we get so lost in that just pleasure for pleasure's sake that um, it kind of loses its um, it's it's really its value in some ways, and and almost we become so used to that that we can't sort of you know leave that. Uh, and like uh, that's the only way we find meaning is suddenly only doing stuff at such an extreme, uh, and taking drugs or whatever it is that you know we get lost. On the other extreme, you know, there's knowing or intelligence, and I, I feel like that's a little bit too you know Cartesian. It's a little bit too logical. It's a little bit too rational. Perhaps a bit masculine. Um, too sort of planned, uh, maybe a little bit too strategic, not very serendipitous. Uh, And it's just sort of another extreme. And what I'm really um, seeking, searching and living and sharing is there's a, there's sort of a middle road that we can dance within. Um, And the only way to get good at dancing with this, and it's kind of a way of dancing with our emotional reaction to the world, our psychological reaction, you know, um, Etc. And so the way to find the middle road um, that I found is really to get more intimate with your senses. And what I mean by that is through your sensory experiences, you start to notice and observe things much more than um, if you're caught in your head in some thought or you're in some space that's only around thinking. And so what happens when we actually go into the embodiment, we go into the feeling, we go into the emotion of it, and we sort of start this uh, more conversational relationship um, within ourselves and with the world and with others in a way that makes it so that we have a, a much bigger palette of expression, experience, feelings, emotions, 
And then we start to not run from things when we experience, we get kind of a little bit out of fight, flight, or freeze, you know, we can, uh, we have a little more agency over ourselves to stretch ourselves to dare to live more uh, an open life, open minded, open hearted, and to love because we're willing to live without regrets. And we want to get stronger in life. And so for me, it's, you know, it's, it's how do we how do we do that? And it's a sort of form of uh, mindfulness, I call it alivefulness, but I'll get to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a sort of form of mindfulness, this sensorial intelligence, where it's really the, the way you get there is you're just really checking in with yourself first. You know, I'll, I'll be riding up the mountain path on my bike, the one that I've taken 25 times, 100 times, and I'm kind of lost in thought. I'm not really there in the present moment. And so I need to get myself to the present moment. I need to trigger that and basically ask myself, you know, uh, am I here? Uh, and 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 suddenly, you know, start focusing on my breathing and sense my heart and, uh, you know, feel my body moving and, you know, suddenly say, oh, yeah, I am here. I, I am with myself. I am present to myself. Uh, and once we kind of get there, you know, you, you can't say that you are here. And when you're here, then you can ask yourself, well, where am I? You know, what am I doing? What am I experiencing? Uh, and this is when you can kind of use your senses to look around. Wow, look at these beautiful trees. Uh, I can feel the wind uh, brisking across me. It feels kind of chilly because I'm sweating underneath my shirt. And you're like, wow, I can feel my legs, um, the power in my legs and the in the muscles kind of working. It feels so great. I really like this. You know, and you kind of go through that sense. And then, you know, you want to ask yourself, what are you appreciating of now that you're really here to appreciate it fully and you're getting the most out of the moment? You're like really maximizing it because you've brought yourself through your senses back to this moment. And then it's like, well, what am I appreciating about this to externalize that um, from what you're kind of saying to yourself in, in your head? Like, oh, my God, you know, this is I'm so uh, I'm so loving uh, this feeling of freedom on the bike, you know, this, the movement and uh, you know, the, the way that it's making me breathe heavy. Cause I don't get to really get my breath up that high during the day. This is really the one moment where I get to kind of push myself and stretch myself, you know, so you just kind of go through uh, um, you know, the appreciations that you can have, which is kind of a certain form of gratitude, but it's a little bit different. And then, you know, the expression of that um, comes in the savoring of it. You know, really, if you can like value what you're experiencing and give it meaning and celebrate it and get that smile on your face, right? Like, oh my God, how bloody lucky am I to be cycling through this forest with clean air, loving it. It's the middle of the day. No one else gets to go biking during the middle of the day. Uh, you know, I'm absolutely loving this, right? And to really get yourself into a space of abundant feeling in your body uh, uh, about what's going on. And and so it's kind of the pathway that you work through um, getting back in touch with yourself to get back into this abundant state. And really for me, it's been a way to to thwart off hedonic adaptation, which uh, I'm sure you know about, but it's, you know, this cognitive habit of 
sort of cataloging things and experiences that we have so that we don't have to really think about it. It becomes sort of an automaticity for us, which is very useful in a lot of ways, you know, to go on autopilot. Uh, but if you're eating dinner every night and you're so used to just sitting and sitting in the same spot and never making it a celebration or special or extra tasty, tasty or daring to do something you haven't done, or you're not like shaking up by drinking, you know, a different kind of wine or, <clears throat> you know, we get into this sort of groundhog day, no matter what the level <laughs> of your life is, right? <laughs> and so the way you got to, you got to kind of snap yourself out of this, uh, by really getting into a state of savoring, uh, like how good it is. And this has helped me thwart off anxiety, um, the feelings of, of scarcity, you know, like, like, oh, poor me, you know, but I'm here enjoying oysters uh, that I, you know, went and bought on the ocean side myself. Uh, and I've opened myself, which is such a gift to be able to do that. And, you know, I've made a beautiful table and I'm kind of celebrating uh, and just making life a, 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 like an ongoing celebration because at the end of the day, you know, life can be long, but life can be short. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the people we love in our lives, the jobs we have, uh, the capacities we have, our health, our relationships, everything can change in a moment's notice. This is the nature of life, this sort of impermanence. And if if we can embrace, I believe we can embrace the sense of appreciation and savoring and real presence so that we know we are not taking for granted anything that we experience in life, especially the people uh, and ourselves, that no matter what happens in our life, we'll be resiliently ready for it. And on top of it, we will have opened our senses and so our experience to um, kind of stretch ourselves, maybe to experience things that make us a little bit uncomfortable, but we've been doing it for so long and we've started to do that emotionally because it translates. And so we're living really a full life with way more expansion and ability. And I would call that strength really and emotional um, resilience and range because we're living this very kind of diverse, open life that's pretty daring to, to do. I mean, cold showers is kind of another example of this, you know, kind of choosing voluntarily to create austerity in your life. When you have hot water to say, I'm going to do cold water, which is super healthy, you know, go, go see your doctor, but <laughs> you know, is super healthy experience to have. And on top of it, it teaches you that your head is thinking all these things, but you can do it anyway. And at the end, afterwards, you kind of feel good about it and you celebrate it. And on top of it, if you really get into the sensorial sensei level, I would call it, you actually find pleasure um, in almost a form of, of equanimity pleasure, if I can call it that, in actually taking the cold showers. You've done it, you know, so much that you actually, and you valued it so much and it has meaning for you so much because you've chosen and created and practiced and cultivated this that suddenly in your life, you can dare to do so many more things, just even by little steps, doing more and more and more and more. And you live a way more expansive, colorful, joyful experience of, of life. Like I hang out with a lot of artistic people. A lot of people don't have anyone in their life that, you know, is artistic, you know, that plays the piano or sings, or then again, people are hiding their talents. You have a dinner party 
if someone knows how to sing and you're not having them sing at the end of your dinner party to share that healing, that joy uh, with others is a great word in French. I'm sure you know this because you're fluid in French, right, Mara? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a word called allegresse, oh, yes. which, is, which is shared joy. Mm-hmm. It's when you're externalizing and sharing the joy. And at the end of the day, we fill up our cups, uh, you know, so we can share. And this is what it's this is what it's really about. So so anyway, it's been for me, sensorial intelligence has been this pathway and a way to uh, um, enable and empower others to live more daring lives uh, where they uh, stretch themselves in ways that can be driven through a doorway of pleasure. And yeah, it's, it changes the quality of your existence of every day, um, almost without changing any of the decisions you're making. Afterwards, of course, making other decisions comes, I think, because the moment you get more present to yourself and your life, you start to realize actually what you like and what you don't like, what you have a preference for and what what are kind of shades of gray that you can explore in. You get more curious. You start to have conversations with people that are more intimate, that are more, um, you know, kind of stretching and getting them to share a little bit more about themselves because you're also sharing more of you. You're loving more them and what they're doing, what they're sharing, and they're loving more. And so there's like this, this wave and vibration that you're raising by living in and from a sense of sensorial intelligence. And for me, it means you're kind of loving, you're loving more the world, not just your kind of conditioned, um, you know, maybe a little bit uh, vanilla ice cream, uh, narrowed down um, version, which is kind of driven by, you know, let's streamline this. Let's life is transactional. Let's just get it done. You know, let's, uh, let's crush it. Let's, uh, you know, all these kinds of things that make it so we're, we're not smelling the flowers. And uh, my gosh, I mean, uh, if there's anything more important than just being here and smelling the flowers and being really present to that and being totally um, embodying presence with the people that you love and in the work that you do. And all of this makes for a, a world where I feel we love the world more and we have a bigger capacity to deal with uh, with trauma, crisis, and the serendipity that life has. And we can dance a little bit between security and adventure a little bit more. Uh, as uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I really love, of course, the work of... Uh, a dear friend Esther Perel and her erotic intelligence, a lot of you know similarities in some ways in what I talk about about living this life that is you know more playful and colorful and expansive, and yeah, you need to be kind of bold to be who you are to share who you are and to let others be who they share of, and overall have a relationship that you love in spite of all of that. Wow. <laughs> That's that's wonderful. Um, you've more or less answered a lot of things I was going to be asking you. So I'm glad you just shared from your heart exactly what you were feeling in the moment. Um, because there's people who they say they don't even know what their passions are, or they don't know how to discover them, or they don't know how to make a big leap. Oh, how scary is that? But with what would your advice be there for those people? Because I know I shared with you that, you know, 32 years ago, my my love of my life and soulmate Cliff, 
and husband, um, you know, we sold everything, bought a sailboat, and we lived in the Bahamas. And that was 32 years ago. And we still have the feeling from that every day and him diving for fish and spearing fish and lobster and the people. And we were the healthiest. You know, you walked everywhere. It was just such a adventure. And now we're, you know, we didn't know if we, we, we were coming back. We bought a one-way ticket like you. And we just didn't know when we were coming back. And, you know, this time we're stepping into a new experience selling our house. We're not sure where we're going to go, but we do know, you know, with some values that we have that we want to be in alignment with is nature and water and great food and community and um, also privacy. So we can have our own time um, along with having conversations with people in that. So how do you share with your people that you talk to for them to follow their passions? Do people come up to you and say, I don't know what my passion is. I don't know how to do that. Do you have those kind of conversations? Yeah, those kinds of conversations come or people don't believe that they can actually uh, spend more time living their passion. Passion. Obviously, a lot of people don't believe they can make a living living their passion. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of things that, you know, I just want to come back again to everyday living. Mm -hmm. For me, if you can't find a way, I don't know, you like to play piano and you can't find a way already just to spend more time, invest more time, create more time, steal more time, negotiate more time, uh, do whatever the heck you have to do to get a little slice of that more frequently. And to get the experience of being in that more frequently. So, I mean, that's, I think it's just, it's also a choice, a decision of priorities at a certain level. And and people live more or less busy lives. But nonetheless, there's always an opportunity to make one choice over another and to make, to find a way to make that happen. And, you know, there's this kind of story, I I guess it's a, a young monk that comes up to the master monk and says, you know, I want to move to a new city. I don't like the place where I'm living. And the, the master says to him, well, you know, um, you're, you know, uh, he says, you're not really passionate about where you live. You don't, you can't find a way to like it. And he's like, no, I don't like it. I want to move somewhere else. And the master says to him, well, you're not going to be happy where you're moving either. So, you know, it just begs the question, um, have you really found creative ways in making your decisions and choices and lifestyle designing um, around your environment, your relationships, what you nourish and educate your mind and heart and soul with, how you invest your money, where you spend your time? If you believe that you're doing that in the way that is passion, makes your life passionate, then you're living a passionate life as far as I'm concerned. If you're looking at your life and you're saying that that's not the case, then we need to find a way to offer you some moments of passion. And already, like, do you know what that is? And, you know, if you do, well, how do we find a way that you can experience more of that? And maybe for some people, they have a, a want or desire for something that they haven't experienced. And it's, well, you know, we've got to find a way for you to get an experience of that. And not just, you know, a little moment, even though, that's interesting because usually the beginning period of something can be, you know, a little bit exciting, probably very shortly, but suddenly we get very daunted by the realization of the ownership of and the responsibility of actually, uh, you know, living that passion or taking the time to do that thing. So it takes a little bit of time actually to experiment with something before you actually know if this is what you want to do, uh, uh, what you want to kind of continue with or pursue. 
So, I mean, nothing, 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 nothing replaces uh, experiencing what you believe you want to spend and invest more of your life with and to come in it, at it with sensorial intelligence presence uh, so that as you're experiencing it, you're giving it your full engagement. You're giving it the best opportunity for it to develop potentially into something meaningful uh, and valuable in your in your life. Um, if you you know you love to dance, but every time you go there, all you think about is your work. So you're not really there, and you're not really getting the experience. Or you go to kung fu, or you go swimming, or piano class, or you know I don't know. Um, you know if you're not really able to bring yourself there because you can't get let go of um, all these mental thinking attachments, I just feel you're going to have a hard time getting the most out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like if there's a life hack to learn faster, to experience faster, it's obviously presence. Uh, you being self-aware to bring yourself back to a state of presence. And as you know, Moira, it's very similar to meditation. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about, and I use the word alivefulness because what we want to be is in a meditation in real life. You know, what is meditation? It's an intimate, quiet moment with ourselves uh, to explore within us and to be with ourselves. And okay, there's various different version, but it's that rendezvous with our uh, with ourself and what happens during meditation, our thinking goes crazy. And we need to train ourselves to gently let it pass like clouds and gently pull the puppy dog, puppy dog back of our awareness to starting again. Just start again and being gentle with ourselves and compassionate with ourselves and allowing ourselves to realize that that's probably not going to stop the thinking. But if I can train my focus and awareness to be um, somewhere to guide, to be guided fluidly somewhere else, and I get better and better at doing that. In my regular life, I get better and better at not focusing on the negative things, not focusing on the on the the certain things that you don't want to. And you start to develop an ability to focus more on what you do want to. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that's kind of how I approach uh, uh, passion. And like you've demonstrated in your life, at some point you need to really consider making a, a leap potentially where you cut off all other possibilities, so to speak, you burn the bridges, you know, you get on that plane with a one-way ticket and you actually let, let yourself discover what will happen. Uh, and you know, what's, what's greater than that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Not so, everything needs to be planned, right? No, no. We can't, I mean, most plans go, most plans go wacky. I can't believe public companies that list on the stock market, they come out every year with their strategic plan and everything, like nothing gets accomplished at the end of the year. You know, they're spending all this money because they have to justify. And for most of them, or a lot of them, like it never goes as planned. It never goes as planned. And I love you think, the, you know? Sorry. I love the idea that when people say, where are you moving? And yes, we're exploring Nova Scotia and we're exploring some areas. But then again, you know, we might go explore BC and then explore some other areas and then make a decision. We're not sure how that part's going to unfold and we're not too worried about it. I totally trust in the universe. The universe hears what I'm saying and who knows what that looks like. And I'm okay with that. I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think precipitated decisions sometimes, I mean, you have to dance with this. Absolutely. 
but you know selection is a is a quite fine art right whether it's selection of a love mate whether it's selection of your work path whether it's selection of where to move you know due diligence has a value mm-hmm. and due diligence it, nothing could be better in a due diligence than actually you and going and spending some time in a place potentially through various seasons it's almost like you know, you have a relationship with somebody, you want to go camping and create difficult scenario and you want to have an argument with them, right? You want to see like the different experiences of what it's actually like before deciding like, like, you know, let's go to uh, Nova Scotia or BC or wherever, let's immediately buy a house and then we'll see. No, no, yeah. well, that's, that's crazy. That's yeah. absolutely crazy. Experiment, explore, but do it, you know, um, you know, fully there and, and I think people uh, don't give themselves permission enough to they kind of make drastic decisions sometimes, impulsive, uh, uh, potentially with not enough heart and soul and like feeling and sensing information, intuition and, and instinct. You know, they said, don't let me decide. I mean, that's there's so many ranges of the spectrum. Uh, you know, let people be successful whatever way it works for them, for sure. We have so much here to cover, David. I'm thinking I'm going to have you back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at this. I I know they're like we could dive into the aliveness, but we also know that they can, they're going to be able to go to a link and get that information from you about, you know, comfort zone expansion, meaning making, conscious alignment, all those things. And we can go into that another time. I do want to touch base though um, in this interview. And the next one we can expand, as I said, is your beautiful book, Dance of the Love Caterpillars, an inspirational romantic tale of the adventure of loving and trusting life. How did you come up with that? Why did you write a fiction book? And who do you want to read it? And the messages you want them to take away? Big chunk of question again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're good at those. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, um, so in... About two years ago, almost to today, a couple of days ago, um, I had uh, a dramatic uh, um, life experience, which was losing my uh, beloved French wife of 27 years. Mm-hmm. And um, after she passed away, I went on my own self-discovery roaming, you know, trying to get back to David's you know, sexual, creative, vibrant soul. And, you know, went off and did lots of different things from Burning Man to Vipassana, Vipassana, um, you know, 10-day, 110-hour silent retreat. Doesn't get more non-sensory than that, whereas Burning Man was absolute sensory overload. And, you know, went to South Africa, jumped off the highest bungee jumping bridge in the world there in Bukrans, 216 meters. Oh, cool. Um, And just kind of let myself roam and explore Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of find my way towards my, you know, next evolution, so to speak. And during that period, uh, I came up with this, you know, this allegory. Uh, I I almost want to live life more uh, as an art form. Um, then let's say a science or a theory or, uh, you know, uh, this type of thing. And I was just wondering how could I write something that would be, you know, a healing for me, a, a metamorphosis uh, that would remind me of what I had lived through and mm-hmm. what potentially my life could, I could live through again, who knows in life. Um, and uh 
be a be a, a, a something I would want to read again and again, uh, something I would want to listen to in a in a narrated music format that would remind me again and again that life is full of serendipitous moments, mm. um, things we are uncertain about, things we do not control, uh, and that change and that there's an impermanence of existence, of relationships, of um, of jobs, of all, I mean, so many things, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I wrote this as, uh, you know, a way to express uh, that I want to live with an open heart. Uh, I don't want to live a life of regret or, uh, you know, <laughs> ongoing sadness or, or grief or, you know, oh, woe's me or, you know, oh, poor David or, you know, getting caught in some sort of a scarcity sense uh, around love and loving and romantic relationships and, uh uh, that uh, this story would serve me to remind me that, you know, any moment you can meet a new love, a next love. Um, and it could be, you know, some random serendipitous uh, thing you didn't expect would happen. They didn't expect would happen. And suddenly there you are. And life has suddenly again evolved and changed. And you know, this only happens though, really, if you go out and explore, if you, uh, you know, open up your heart again, which is another way of opening and exploring. If you explore within yourself and you don't hide away from uh, the pain and you let things flow through you and you do the work that you need to do with and for yourself and you bring yourself to a, a place of uh, trusting life again to the point where you're not fearful, you're not, you know, oh, I'm going to get hurt, uh, uh, this is too scary. Uh, this is too much for me. This is not enough. This is, you know, all these other things also, or even being in a place of comparison. And, you know, the book wants to remind me and and I hope everyone else that, you know, living is full of loving life, which involves trusting it and that anything can happen. And we need to dance with that. And metamorphoses may come and it's a choice or maybe it's not a choice, uh, and overall, along the way, you know, the imperative, our our, our moral obligation to life, uh, if we love life, if we say we love life, that we want to be able to savor all of the sensations and sensorial adventures and emotional range of things and intellectual thinking and all of this that that we're exposed to in life without closing off and becoming you know, a hermit or somebody who, who uh, is suffering because they, they can't open up and they can't face um, what life has brought to them and or when they're pursuing success or their ambitions, et cetera, that um, they can't quite get there because they're, they're not able to, um, to, to savor that this chaos is, is part of the adventure of life. And so savor it and enjoy it and get pleasure out of it. It's going to be purposeful, you know, and live your passion, follow your passion. If that's what's meaningful, for you have the courage to dare and stretch yourself. And yeah, overall, <laughs> savor it, have fun, make it playful. Um, it's going to be meaningful if you're present, 
if you're open to possibility, if you love with a full, pure, real heart, um, you cannot live with regret. Whatever happens, you will know that you gave who you are uh, to yourself, to, to your loved ones, to the world. And for me, that's living a fulfilling, purposeful, meaning life, and, and in the end, a performant life. And so I wanted to write it for people that, um, you know, some having a similar situation to me doesn't really matter, but anyone who's loved, uh, anyone who has um, experienced loss of some sort, um, anyone who maybe is being challenged to love life again and to trust it again and to open themselves up to experimentation and exploration and, and you know, trusting the magic of what happens when uh, you open up to, like, what can happen here? What are the gifts in today? And you you start to open and see things. And as you experience more, you start to stretch yourself and you try those five kinds of cheeses that smelled so bad in France, you would have never eaten them. And suddenly you are. And like life, you suddenly reason, like we talked about in the beginning, the diversity of life, that there's a full offering and that um, we will find love again. Um, but we need to be love mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we need to love life as the demonstration of being love, um, of loving ourselves, the mm -hmm. greatest demonstration is that we are externally loving life. It's not just a facade. Um, it's a genuine smile with soulful eyes that ideally, of course, is kind and generous and, and empathic and, and compassionate, even though life is doing life. And we're all kind of, you know, students of of facing the different challenges as we're trying to achieve something, uh, you know, get something to happen, um, hustling, whatever is happening. Uh, but overall, to just savor it, because I can tell you, me having lost the love of my life, the only reason I don't have any regret is that we fully lived and loved and savored each other in the life that we had and didn't let the moments just pass by without celebrating as many as possible making them qualitative and pleasurable uh, and, you know, nourishing to our souls and our hearts. So when you live like this and you're fully present to life and loving it, you know, you live a life you love. Uh, look, you also talk, live the life you love and love the life that you lead. I love that. Yeah, and I mean, that's the whole thing about this idea that, you know, there's two sides. It's, you know, it's kind of a universal law thing. Like we're talking about this monk story. Like if you can't love the life um, you're, you're living, um, how can you live the life you love and vice versa? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, or um, if you can't find the value in a life, that's already pretty good in a lot of ways, or you can't find the things in the life that are good, you know, why is that going to be different um, down the road? It's not, you're going to do the same thing when you get, you know, successful or whatever result or outcome that, you know, you're, you're going to be looking for what's missing, what's lacking. You're mm -hmm. going to be saying, I need more. You're going to be in FOMO. You're going to be in comparison. So already you need in your current world to be in this, you know, this place of abundance and gratitude and appreciation and savoring and these types of things. I, I used to do, um, I created something called the gratitude dance when I spoke on cruise lines, Cliff and I both spoke on cruise lines for about five years <laughs> and wow. I get people up and they loved it. And it was, I did this arm movement thing and all that, but I got them to build <laughs> up and, um, you know, 
and it's all around gratitude, you know, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun for people. And I, I noticed I watched one of your videos where you did celebrate at the end of it for a company. And I thought, <laughs> David, I've done celebrate for on the cruise line. I also did um, Black Eyes Peas that tonight's going to be a good night. So again, no, people, come yeah. on. No, really. People got up my, and danced. My, I did. my sister. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. We have dolphins and all the stuff. So Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> David, I would love you to read, choose a passage from your book. Uh, I love authors reading from your voice. Um, just a segment from your book that you thought would be really good to, as we come to a close of um, our heartfelt conversation today. Mm. Mm. Just give me a moment. Yes. Me. No, for sure. Well, we don't want to give away the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't I read this, uh, this page here, this passage? Um, Thank you. It's kind of in the middle of the uh, the book, and yeah, I think it's a it's a beautiful uh, moment in the story. The two two caterpillars um, wondering about this, you know, metamorphoses that's imminent. What if we tried to connect our cocoons together by a thread? Do you think that we could pass through to the other side? and then become husband and bride? Most of us caterpillars will spend 30 days in the cocoon. Some are faster and do it in seven, and others stay more than a year. I wonder if we really get this choice, or does life choose for us? And what if our timing is all off? We come out from the mysterious cocoon ride, and we're not together side by side. I've heard rumors that we will change colors. Your pink and my blue will become black, orange, and white. So beautiful, so beautiful. And I have read this book several times and I gave it to my husband to read the other day and my mother. And um, I, I believe it's a beautiful book for somebody to have the size of it, just to keep to remind you about trusting life and the adventure of love. Thank you, David. David, can you share? Yeah, you're welcome too. Thank you so much. Could you share with our listeners today? You've created a special gift and an offer for them, just for them. And I appreciate that because I appreciate my community also. Um, and know that all the links where you can find David in your amazing gifts will be below this episode in the show notes. So David, if you could share that, that would be wonderful. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I believe I believe there's three things that we put on there. Is that right? There, there's something like that. I'm looking at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one of the uh, one of the the tools I wanted to just share is a is a PDF download, which is a an alivefulness uh, checklist uh, that can bring you into this. Uh, how do I live uh, with more alivefulness in my everyday life? Uh, that you can you can download and use, which is a a, a useful and you know pleasurable, purposeful and performant uh, um, 
um, document. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that I prepared uh, specifically for uh, for you, the listeners here of Moira's podcast, is to offer, uh, I think it's the first five minutes of Dance of the Love Caterpillars, the audio version, uh, which I've not offered to anybody. And uh, so to give you a sense, uh, it's my narration. And what makes it really unique and beautiful is, you know, it's told in a storytelling kind of fashion, while it's accompanied by an original piano composition by Viara Ivanova Dietrich. And it's just an exquisite, uh, an exquisite piece of um, music really, really married well with uh, my narration. It's just a, it's a beautiful, lovely piece. I don't know if Moira, you've been able to, to listen to that yet. Uh, but it's I've really listened beautiful. to part of it. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And then lastly, I've just offered a, a you know, a very friendly uh, Moira special price for any one-on-one -on -one coaching uh, um, sessions that someone would like to experience uh, with me. So uh, there's a link there to, uh, to set that up. That's very generous of you. I really appreciate that. David, thank you so much for sharing from your heart and soul, your wisdom on the adventure of loving, appreciating, savoring, and trusting life. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast with Moira Sutton. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join our community at moirasutton.com and continue the discussion on our Facebook page, Create the Life You Love. You will be part of a global movement connecting with other heart-centered people who are consciously creating the life they love on their own terms. Together, we can raise our consciousness for the greater good of humanity and for our planet.